0: G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Uh, folks, as we get underway, I'd like us to regain a what I'd call a first century sense of just the first half, of the first verse of our reading today in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I suspect we underestimate the apparent stupidity of the cross of Christ to a first-century mind. So, to that end, could we briefly, uh, just indulge me for a minute, brothers and sisters, could we briefly come back to Luke 23, come back to Luke's Gospel, let's relive just some of that uh, the events of that ghastly day, Luke 23, and we'll pick it up in verse 32. Luke 23, if you're following along on your lap. Luke 23, verse 32, sentence number 32, two other men, here we are, both criminals... Both criminals were also let out with Jesus to be executed. Okay, here's the scene, two criminals. Do we feel that, brothers and sisters? The company that Jesus was keeping in his final hours, uh, men condemned by the courts to die because they deserved it, as the legal system of the time saw it, because they were crooks. A judge had decided that this was the appropriate fate for these men. That's where Jesus fit in the first century world. Verse 33, when they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified Him along with the criminals, one on His right and the other on His left. Verse 35, the people, the people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at Him. They said, He saved others, let Him save Himself if He's the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers, also came up and mocked him, now verse 37, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was a written notice above him and Pilate, of course, he, Pilate had the notice written, it was supposed to be insultingly ironic. This is the king of the Jews, it read. And one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Christ, save yourself and us? So friends, this morning, the rulers, the people, the Romans, even one of the criminals, at least one of the criminals beside him, um, what gave them grounds to sneer, to insult, to mock our dying Jesus? I think they mocked, didn't they? And they insulted, uh, they took the posture that they did because they thought they were right and they thought that the crucifixion of Jesus proved that they were right. Jesus had failed, spectacularly so, in the boldest terms and He hung there for all to see. So, Martin Hengel, a, uh, an expert in crucifixion, what a ghastly prospect that is, Martin Hengel writes this uh, on uh, what crucifixion meant back then, he says, for the men of the ancient world, Greeks, Romans, barbarians and Jews, the cross... Was not just a matter of indifference, just any kind of death. By the public display of a naked victim at a prominent place, crucifixion also represented his uttermost humiliation, which, says Hengel, which had a numinous dimension to it. Numinous meaning it's spiritual. There's a spiritual dimension, it's a divine. It's God saying, You deserve to die, you are cursed because that's what crucifixion meant back then. In fact, doesn't it say in Deuteronomy 21, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Well, I put it to you, brothers and sisters, that they sneered and they mocked and they ridiculed Jesus as He hung. Why? Because for all of the upset that He had caused, all of the the ruckus that his teaching had made, all of the buzz that his miracles had generated over the years, all of the open challenges and his witty little comebacks, he had failed and the crucifixion said so. But today, brothers and sisters, I put it to you today that while our culture might not see God's cursing hand in crucifixion like it did for them, I put it to you that today, that there remains still a fundamental reason why our world counts Jesus a failure and a loser and a has-been. There's a fundamental reason that is still here today that it will count you and I and every believer the world over a dork and more than a little unhinged and a loser. And believe it or not, if you're not a Christian here today or you're not quite sure, I'll put it to you that that reason turns out to be the very reason that you need to stand against the tide and line up with Jesus and become a Christian this morning. Can I lead us in prayer as we turn to 1 Corinthians? Let's pray. Now, Father God in heaven, just occasionally, we look back at the horror of the cross and we really are disgusted by the human behaviour that we find there, we find smug men, indulging in vindictive mocking and ridicule and it saddens us, it troubles us, it appalls us. But much more often, Father, our eyes aren't on that scene at all. Much more often, our eyes are on our own little lives and what it means to stand with Jesus here and now, which seems, yes, different on so many fronts, a different prospect altogether, thankfully, than it did back then. But God in heaven, please help us to discern today both the inner logic of your saving plan, why would you save us that way by a crucified Christ? And and also, yes, the inner logic, but also the proper shape of our Christian life in this world. Father, facing ridicule or appearing lame or stupid is hard enough, but not knowing why we should or whether we need to at all, that makes it feel practically impossible. We pray that the Gospel of Jesus would come alive to us this morning, Father, as a clarifying and motivating force for everyday endurance in the faith. We ask for that this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name, please. Amen. Okay, so 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, for the message of the cross, begins Paul here, is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'd like to begin with a question, that first bit, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, does it really have to be that way? (laughs) Does it have to be that way? As foolishness in the eyes of the world? Let me spin it around the other way, perhaps this might help. In your heart of hearts, do you instead firmly believe that the world ought to see you and ought to see uh, the Christian life, see us with our truth and with our teaching and look at Christians as wise and noble and upright and and grounded and frankly kind of admirable and desirable people, at least when we're at our best. If the world out there saw us for what we really are and what we stand for, what's really going on amongst Christian people, understood the gospel as it really is, you know, no media beat up, no fringe, weirdo spokesperson, where do they even find those people? No ungodly scandals. No, if the world only saw us, then wouldn't they like what they see? Wouldn't it take them by surprise? Delight them even? The profound wisdom of a godly life, the lovely beauty of God's love, the, uh, the elegant simplicity of a life lived independence on Jesus. In our heart of hearts, don't we imagine that the world ought to like what they see and one day they will, won't they? Brothers and sisters, I, I find that longing in my own heart but I also find that longing pretty hard to square with what I find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Please read with me, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Just get that, Paul is quoting God, God speaking back in Isaiah there. God is saying, here is my grand plan, here is my eventual design, here is my grand schema for the world. It's not everyone getting it and seeing and crystal clear and there it is, gosh, they're so noble and admirable. No, here was God's grand design, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Then Paul goes on, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Just allow me to summarise for a moment. Number one, the world reckons that the Gospel of Jesus is lame. It doesn't look wise, in fact, it looks kind of ridiculous, something that you would ridicule and don't we see that uh, in, in uh, the media today? And that, secondly, was precisely God's intention before it even happened, that the world wouldn't know Him, wouldn't figure Him out, wouldn't, be, wouldn't get it. Now, am I the only one asking... Why? Why, God, why would you do it that way? If God could save any way that He likes, I mean, His God, then why on earth doesn't He pick a way that at least the world wouldn't mind the look of? You know, wouldn't mind, the might get a bit excited by? I mean, it'd certainly make being a Christian a whole lot easier, wouldn't it? Can you imagine trying to win converts? It'd make that a bit easier. Evangelism. Why, oh God, couldn't you have picked some more palatable option, some more pleasant route to saving humankind? Couldn't there have been another way? Brothers and sisters, may I take you on a little journey for a moment in your imagination, in your mind's eye, back to um, memories that are hopefully vivid for you. Let's try a few so that we try and cover everyone um, this morning. First one, here's one. Say that you stopped at the traffic lights, okay? You pulled up in your car and up next to you comes... Porsche. No, no, no. Let's go a little bit more. You see a few Porsches around, a Ferrari, or one of those lovely old Jags. You know the ones. And it's polished, and it's shining, and it's got those lines that only sports cars have. And you you're sort of you're looking across, and you catch the person's eye. You quickly look away. And now look down at your car. Okay. There's one scene. Second scene. Imagine that you're standing down at the docks. I uh, could, be, could be down here at Lindisfarne, but let's um, for, the, for the sake of this, let's imagine that you're over near Muir's over in Hobart uh, at the docks over there. You've gone for a stroll. Why did I put us there? Because I want you to see the scale of the yacht that's in front of you. You know those ones where you start looking up at them and they just keep going? This thing's enormous. How much is this? Evidence? You're standing there beside this yacht and you just happen to come up at the moment that the owner of the yacht and the, the pilot, the captain of the yacht, they're, they're popping some champagne and they're having some merry chit-chat and sharing some jovial times um, on the deck there. Oh, they don't notice you. No, no. they don't notice passers-by. It's the second little scene. The third little scene, perhaps a bit more pedestrian, hopefully even more relatable, it's that moment when you step up to the, the counter at the deli in your local shop and you're waiting to be served and up alongside you steps a man or a woman considerably younger than you if you're honest, just far more attractive and better made up and better dressed, just stunning, like, you know, grace and elegance um, and style and you're, it just so happens, you're in your gardening things, you're just nicked up to the shop and you wonder to yourself, but of course you already know the answer, (coughs) who's going to be served first when the deli kid turns around? Now, can we take a look at this together? Don Carson says it like this. Did I give you this quote, Hans? I'm not sure I did. Don Carson says it like this. He says, the gods of the rich are not gentle with those the rich dismiss as poor. The gods of the wise are not kind to those the wise reject as stupid. The gods of the social elite are not patient with outcasts. So, we're building an argument here, brothers and sisters, and plank number one is this, that the fact that we have a ridiculous sounding gospel, lame in the eyes of the world, forgettable, a little unhinged even, that is not a regrettable accident, it is the design of God. There's been no unfortunate misunderstanding, no failure to communicate clearly, no inability to give church or Jesus enough of a facelift so that they actually like us. But why plank number two? It's because God refuses to play those games, those petty games. God sees the hollow and horrible dark side of our games for power and riches and beauty and influence that find significance in who we are uh, when we're measured by those things. You want to play those games, you want to look better than one another and seem wiser and stand taller. Well, says God, I'll tell you what I'll give you. I'll give you a crucified Jesus. Jesus crumpled on a cross, lifeless and alone. If you can swallow that, then you can know me, you can come to me. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him, is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Could I share with you a little story um, this morning? It's, uh, it's a story not of a Christian lady or a, it's not a conversion story, it's not even written by a Christian lady actually. Um, Harriet Lerner is um, an American clinical psychologist. So, you know, she's a therapist. You know, she has patients come to her for therapy. She's also an author and a a lecturer and a feminist and um, quite a remarkable woman, actually, Harriet Lerner. Anyway, as a therapist, a woman named Maggie came to see her one day and I'd like to um, share with you Maggie's story because Maggie was stuck. She was stuck in a way that I suspect we can relate to. Here she goes telling Maggie's story. Maggie, a 28-year-old graduate student at a local university, came to see me. Now, from Maggie's description, she and her mother had never gotten along very well, nor had their relationship improved when Maggie left home and started a family of her own on the other side of the country, I might add. Um, Since that time, Maggie and her father had become increasingly distant, while her relationship with her mother... Had become more intense. Maggie dutifully invited her mother for annual visits, remember they lived on opposite sides of the country, but by the third day, Maggie would feel frustration and rage. During therapy sessions, Maggie would describe the horrors of the particular visit to which she was being subjected. With despair and anger in Maggie's voice, she would recite her mother's crime sheet She would document her mother's unrelenting negativism and intrusiveness. During one visit, for example, Maggie reported the following events. Maggie and Bob, that's her husband, Maggie and Bob had redecorated their living room. Mother hadn't noticed. Bob had just learned of his forthcoming promotion. Mother didn't comment. Maggie and Bob effortfully prepared fancy dinners. Mother complained that the food was too rich. To top it all off, Mother lectured Maggie about her messy kitchen and criticised her management of money and when Maggie announced that she was three months pregnant, Mother replied, how will you deal with a child when you can hardly make time to clean your house? About all this, Maggie had said nothing except for a few sarcastic comments and one enormous blow-up to mark the day of her mother's departure. When I asked Maggie about her silences, she provided countless justifications for her failure to speak up. Among them were, oh, I could never say that. My mother can't hear. It would only make things worse. I've tried it a hundred times and it doesn't work. The situation is hopeless. It would kill my mother if I said that. Oh, it's just not important enough to me anymore. You just don't know my mother. Sound familiar? Asks Harriet Lerner. Sound familiar? When emotional intensity is high in a family, most of us put the entire responsibility for poor communication on the other person. It is one's mother or father, sister, brother who is deaf, defensive, crazy, hopeless, helpless, fragile or set in their ways. Always we perceive that it is the other who prevents us from speaking and keeps the relationship from changing. We disown our part in the interactions we complain of and with it, the power to bring about change. Now, it's sad listening into Maggie's life, isn't it? You can see the dance that she and her mother are doing and how it keeps going round and round in circles. But haven't we seen this before? Now, maybe it's not your mum uh, that you have the conflict with. It could be your sister, it could be your sister-in-law, it might be your boss, it might be that cranky colleague... I've seen friendships, I've known friendships that have turned sour. Now, maybe he was being awful, but gosh, I wish I'd calmly confronted him about it earlier. Could we have maybe saved our friendship and a whole lot of angst and sleep besides? I've definitely seen relationships go this way, intimate relationships among dear friends of mine gone to the wall. Haven't you seen it as well? Because they got locked in a dance both of them, each feeding the dysfunction of the other, neither of them willing to sort of step and confront, so they were locked in patterns that go around and around in a spiral until finally one of them spirals off and suddenly he's dancing with someone else and gosh, I hope they figure out a different way to dance this time, don't you? Brothers and sisters, here's my point and maybe it seems a bit tangential but in a way that's uh, illustrative. Here's my question, what if the difficulty... What if the difficult dance that you've been doing with God in your life, the difficult dance that you've been doing with God in your life says more about your discomfort with Jesus, your unwillingness to learn his dance and change steps in your life? What if it says more about you and your values than it does about him? What I mean is this, it might look like this. Perhaps being a Christian, it just seems so lame. It doesn't make you special amongst your friends. In fact, the opposite, and that's why you don't talk about it, you don't invite that friend to church, as if you're going to invite her to church. She doesn't even know you're a Christian, and you're kind of hoping that it never comes up. Or perhaps, oh, look, you, you grew up with it, you get it, you know the message, you know the Gospel, you know all that stuff, and you wear the name Christian, you do but you'd be quite happy if that name Christian played an ever-diminishing role in your life because because you want to do other things and you and your friends and the things that you value that are important to you and the direction that your life's going in, well, it's just the way of the world, isn't it? It's the way that you want to go. I put it to you, if you are waiting for Jesus to play by the ways of the world, for Him to count you special because of your smarts or because of your deep and noble passions or because you really get it when none of the people around you do. Indeed, if you're waiting for him to like you for the same reasons that your friends like you, I put it to you. I don't think you've even understood the Gospel. Jesus didn't come to stroke the pride of those who were going to make it in life. He came to save the souls of those who have realised they can't and won't, and should never have been trying to on their own steam. And please notice here, all of us, that the Gospel isn't, for Paul, just a bunch of ideas about Jesus that you give intellectual assent to, it's a whole way of looking at the world, a whole way of looking at God and ourselves and the things that we value in life and it's going to pinch and it might really hurt. But that said, verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you're in Christ Jesus, who's become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. By way of conclusion... What kind of message do you have? What kind of message do we share to hold out to our friends and our loved ones? Let me give you three features of Paul's message here in Corinthians. I reckon we've got a message, don't we, that makes a massive deal about God. A message that makes a massive deal about God because making a massive deal out of us, it really does ring hollow. We've got a message, secondly, that says Jesus, Jesus can save real people. People who would otherwise spend their lives chasing after the winds of self-importance before finally perishing. Jesus can save the souls of people like that. And lastly, we've got a message that says that I am loved and I am chosen when the world says I'm a dork and I'm a nothing. Brothers and sisters, is that a message that our world needs to hear? I reckon it is. I really reckon it is. Is it a message that we should stick under the mattress or keep in our pocket or shove to the back of the cupboard until the world comes around to liking it? Never going to happen, never going to happen. When I came to you brothers, I didn't come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching weren't with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Let's pray together. Great God in heaven, we wouldn't have done it your way, we'd never have thunk it. Left to ourselves, we'd do something spectacular. But God, then our message would only pander to our self-absorbed lusts and pride and desire for attention. Thank you that in Jesus, if we have nothing else, we have a saviour who points us to our God instead of a salve that just calms our nerves for these few short years. So God, we pray for endurance And perseverance, but we ask that we'd learn to stick at your mission in this world, not in a way that hardens us and embitters us and turns us against the world, you know, inward and crumbling, but God, make our hearts tender. Give us Paul's eager generosity to speak and live and proclaim values that clash with the world, but out of love for it. Lord God, rescue and save those who are perishing, please, even amongst us and among our loved ones and children and siblings and parents. But Father, we pray too, may they see in us a life lived dancing a different dance. May they see Gospel values in action. And by Your Spirit, give them the grace to see that dance as beautiful and lovely. May they, with us, learn to boast of our Saviour, who turns lives upside down, and we are so much the better for it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.